Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf. I am your host, and joining me today on the episode in London, England, Corey Shockey, permanent holder of the Tiara of Optimism, and in <laughs> at the Center for American Progress, their Vice President for National Security Studies, Kelly Magsiman, and at Georgetown University, our own Rosa Brooks, uh, who is Associate Dean there at the uh, School of Law. Uh, I was saying uh, between uh, 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 conversations that we have before we go on the air, that sometimes I get harassed by various uh, uh, members of my family. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I get emails like this one, which I just got from my mother shortly before we began here, which says, one wonders if it is not time to re-reveal that Stephen Miller is a Semitic anti-Semite, a very low life form, who had a grandmother who only spoke Yiddish, and revisit the Trump ancestors, notably his grandfather, a draft dodger, as he emigrated here and for a time amassed a lot of money as a purveyor to a latter-day gold rush of hotels and whorehouses. Oh, mom. Mom. Red <laughs> Trump was a member of the KKK. This is my mother. And then she says, but the sun is shining and the snow is melting. It's really, this is the kind of thing. Support that I get on our. Children. I love it that you get trolled by your mom, David. Yeah, well, <laughs> trolled, wound up by my mom. But Rosa, I understand your dad sort of one up to you, but this whole thing. <laughs> he did. That story. Well, my dad, I, I my dad actually made me a a thorny crown of entropy for for me to wear or or display possibly on the mantle. He made it Fantastic. out of <laughs> out of sticks and thorns, and it's decorated with all sorts of occult symbols, including the actual formula for entropy. Um, and he handed to me in this in this cardboard box. It was all sealed up. Dad, I hope you're listening. Um, and and he he said. It's just a small present for you. Don't don't tell anyone because I don't want your siblings to be jealous or anything. Um, <laughs> I opened it. I said, Dad, I don't think you've got anything to worry about. Um, but no, I do now own an actual uh, thorny crown of entropy made of, made of wood. Fantastic! Wow, happy Easter! And Whoa. I, I was wearing it because well, yesterday suit, suitably on the day we're recording this, I say yesterday, but. Um, uh, this year we had the strange confluence of Easter and April Fool's Day, which made it a perfect day for the thorny crown of entropy. Can I say how much I loved Twitter for showing me people taking Brussels sprouts, coating them in chocolate and nuts and wrapping That's them mean. in gold foil to pass off to unsuspecting right children there. as candy? <laughs> I could not be prouder of those people. No, in the middle of it right now. Wow, that is that is that is really something. Kelly, does your family wind you up in the same way that Rosa and mine do, or 
Have you been spared? Oh, yeah. that thing? <laughs> uh, yes, mine definitely wind me up. I have my parents, my dad lives out in Arizona. Uh, my mother lives north of Baltimore. And it's, you know, my mother is very much on the sort of liberal end of the spectrum. My father's very conservative. So I get uh, treatment on both ends whenever I uh, go home to visit. So they spin me up in different directions. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I could imagine that. I was in Arizona last week, and we went to a rodeo. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm sure this is evoking all sorts of imagery out there, but we actually went to a rodeo. And the amount of flags on horses and and talk about our God-given rights to firearms was really kind of something. I was just in Nashville, uh, uh, where I went to a Grand Old Opry concert and to the Country Music Hall of Fame, David. So I, I, I can one up you there. Know. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh, Corey, I went to a rodeo, and Rosa went to the Grand Old Opry, and you're the Republican. And you're what are you doing? You're you're in old Europe. Yeah. So what? you, my friends, are going to have to work up <laughs> to my level. The first money I earned. <laughs> was in cattle arbitraging. When I was a little Ooh. kid, I would buy runt calves from the local dairies in my dusty little cow town, raise them on bottled milk, and auction them off at the county fair to earn my spending Oh my money. goodness. Corey, do you have any left over? <laughs> <laughs> any money or any cattle? Any cattle. <laughs> no, Corey. best to get rid of them young. Cattle are stupid and ornery. Well... Many of them could do a good job in the Trump administration, which leads me <laughs> to point. Um, uh, Kelly, once upon a time, I think when I first met you, actually, you were working in the Obama administration, and you were you had a job which, having written a couple of books about the NSC, was the one that I kept coming back to, which was that we needed to have a strategic planning capacity. And on a typical basis in the NSC, People come in and they talk about it. Brent Scowcroft said, this was the most important thing I was going to do. And then he said, and I never got around to it because things happen, you know. And inside, right. you know, inside the government, we, we, we talk about doing strategic planning, but it actually happens much less than people would think. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit from a strategic planning point of view, perhaps not from the point of view of the U.S. government, although it has implications, but from the point of view of other governments around the world. And I want to work, look out what might be a year or two years or three years. But something that has come up again and again in conversations I've been involved with is what happens after Trump? How many of the things that Trump is doing with trade, with international institutions, with specific allies, whether it's Mexico or South Korea, with rivals like Russia or enemies like Russia, rivals like China, countries elsewhere in the world, what's going to happen the day after he goes? You know, how much of that's just going to snap back? And we're going to say, oops, never mind. You know, hey, Mexico, you know, he was crazy. Just forget about it. We're back to the way we used to be. And how much of that is going to linger? And what is going to actually have lasting consequences? Because to me, strategic planning for the rest of the world is going to involve figuring this out. I was just thought I'd start with you and go around to everybody and just sort of talk a little bit about um, the day after Trump. Folks uh, overseas and who have very different reactions, some of them will say, we'll never forget that you voted for, you know, that you elected Donald Trump, uh, and that's going to have a lasting impact on how we think about the United States and what you stand for and your values. There are others who say, 
you know, we'll get through the next few years, you know, we'll figure it out, um, but don't reelect him. Uh, I do think there's probably a little bit of a four-year versus eight-year question in terms of how much uh, damage that he can do. Um, but I think, you know, we're already starting to see that even within four years, a lot of damage can be done uh, to sort of how allies perceive us, uh, how the world perceives us, uh, and not just, you know, perception, damage and perception, but potential material damage if, you know, for example, he decides to start a preventive war with North Korea um, or potentially get into another conflict uh, to get into conflict with the Iranians. So, I mean, I think there is a, a matter of timing. Um, I think about this question a lot. And I think what's unfortunate about uh, President Trump is that he's coming at precisely the worst possible moment <laughs> uh, in history, I think, for the United States when we were already going through a, a transition internationally um, that was going to be difficult to navigate for any president, much less one who doesn't necessarily believe in the values uh, that have defined American foreign policy for decades. And so, you know, it's sort of Trump pouring gasoline <laughs> um, onto the fire. And, you know, in terms of coming out the other side, I think, you know, if the United States, you know, my, in my perfect world, Trump gets booted out of office one way or the other, and the United States returns in some way to a values-driven uh, foreign policy. Um, and when I say values, I mean democratic values. And But will the world trust us? Will the world, um, you know, think that we can do that? Um, Post-Trump, I think, is an open question. But, you know, if you're looking at the central, from a strategic planning perspective, if you're looking at the central struggle um, that's going to face the United States for the next uh couple of decades, it's going to be, you know, the, the rise of illiberalism globally, and uh, it's going to be basically fighting for liberalism uh, in the context of that. Uh, and when you don't have a president that sort of understands the importance of liberal values, uh, you're already kind of losing the game. So I think he can do a tremendous amount of damage um, between now and then. And from a planning perspective, I think we've got to be figuring out how uh, to restore international faith in the United States, but also American faith in what we stand for in the world. Well, Rosa, let me turn this to you. Um, the day after Trump, what changes the day after Trump that's just related to Trump? Uh, well, I think that um, we begin to have a slightly more orderly decision-making process. Uh, in the White House, uh, whether we have a Republican coming in or whether we have a Democrat coming in, I think you know. I think that we return to some semblance of process uh, normalcy in the White House, uh, and that's obviously a good thing, sort of independent of substance. Um, but I, I actually just wanted to respond a little bit to uh, your question to, to Kelly as well and Kelly's comments. I actually think it would be a great and really important project to pull together a sort of some kind of group of interesting, smart people to, to do a sort of after Trump project to say, what are we going to need to do? What's going to need to be cleaned up? What is easy to fix? What is going to be hard to fix? You know, what's the agenda? What, what should get fixed first? What should get fixed second? You know, et cetera. Because I, I do think that the the damage that this administration is doing uh, to institutions, to norms, to policies, just across the board is, is so great that there is going to be a significant amount of cleaning up, again, whichever party ends up in, in the White House 
uh, after the next round of presidential elections. Uh, and we better start thinking now, because if we don't, um, you know, we're going to lose opportunities. We're going to we're going to inadvertently cement some of the damage that's been done. Uh, I would actually so 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 I'm proposing this to to Kelly uh, in her position at CAP, uh, not to mention any of our listeners, uh, our many influential listeners at their own little think tanks um, and big think tanks. Uh, you know, we should start. You guys should launch a an after Trump project. Yeah, I thought that's what we were doing right here, Rosa. But, you know, <laughs> well, in a more, you know, in a slightly more organized way. Well, <laughs> but we'll we'll contribute. It could hardly be more organized than this. But let's pick up on that, Corey. Let's let's assume that Rosa's idea is a good idea, since it was actually the idea behind this episode. And, <laughs> and making it a great idea. To make it great, it's and say, you know, where would you start? But, you know, I mean, what what should the agenda be? Where, If you're giving advice to U.S. public policy people, what has Trump done that needs to be fixed soonest? What is second, third, as Rosa said? So I love the idea, and I do think it's a really good thing for, in particular, American think tanks to be working on for two reasons. Reason one... Uh, By the way, I think they could do it in conjunction with you guys, right? Because <laughs> international think tanks need to be thinking the same thing or thinking about the same questions. Uh, I imagine governments are already thinking about that question as they've tried to wrestle with uh, how much to accommodate President Trump, I think, has a lot to do with how much they think he is accurately reflecting American public opinion. And versus how much is his own pulling rabbits out of his hat or talking off of the top of his head. So just to take one example that's actually going to be hard for folks, trade policy. Both major American political parties have been talking absolute nonsense on trade policy for quite a long time. Barack Obama in 2008 campaigned against NAFTA. Um, both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump oppose the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership. So if you are a foreign government, what do you, it, you know, it affects how you have to think about it if both American political parties are anti-trade. And everybody knows Clinton was lying about that, but she and Jake Sullivan would say it with a straight face time and time again. And so it puts, it makes, the intellectual challenge of thinking, where do our interests overlap with American interests and where should we be pushing back against places where they don't overlap and how much of that failure to overlap is specific to this reckless president and his third rate administration versus how much of it is accurately reflecting American sentiments as globalization mm -hmm. advances. I, I think it's a I think it's a really important problem to build intellectual capital on. I also think it's a really hard problem. And we sometimes um, simplify, oversimplify the task by suggesting that, that you can separate Trump from the political forces that got him elected president in the United States. So here would be my priorities, though. Uh, the first one for me would be um, 
America's alliance commitments because the countries that we have them to, I can't think of a single country with which we have an alliance relationship that believes it could defend its interest without American assistance, right? Not even the British uh, believe they could uh, achieve their national interests without American help. So that's the most important one to be able to figure out how much of this is Donald Trump ricocheting around and wanting to feel like a celebrity with heads of state, Trump uh, traveling through the White House, for, and how much is his weird uh, appreciation and admiration for authoritarian governments versus how much is Americans losing their desire to be the rule makers and enforcers of the international order? And do they understand what a world that others set the rules in will be like for America? And how can we affect that understanding? Well, those are good places to start. Rosa, before I turn back to Kelly, what are, what are the other agenda items you would add? Hmm. Uh, I mean, some of it, I think, is is obviously symbolic that, that there are a series of symbolically important statements that whoever becomes president, I think, will need to make that relate to both foreign policy and to domestic issues, you know, statements about the U.S. unwillingness to tolerate uh, fascism, Nazism, racism, various forms of intolerance that, that both internationally and domestically Trump has uh, enabled and empowered. Uh, and I think that that, you know, notwithstanding the importance of, of dealing in the longer term with the social forces that that are behind Trump's election victory, as, as Corey said, which we will have to do, that, that some of the very first moves are going to be symbolic reassertions of American values. Um, and I think it's a, you know, that was a fairly easy list to put together, sort of, uh, you know, that as, as Corey says, internationally, it's about the importance of alliances, it's about the importance of diplomacy, uh, it's about the importance of uh, democratic states that respect human rights standing up for those values and respecting those values themselves and working together to to try to foster those values globally speaking um, i think that then there's a, a a series of sort of institutional reforms um, that are going to be harder and more complicated um, but that also sort of do go to you know some day one symbolic statements uh, uh, such as reasserting the importance of a professionalized, nonpartisan civil service and military, um, and making it clear that civil servants will not be penalized for speaking about the facts as they understand them, that that is, in fact, part of their job, uh, and then trying to undo some of the you know, numerous uh, executive orders and and regulatory actions that have created a climate in which it is harder and harder for civil servants to operate in the way they're supposed to be operating um, then I think there's a much you know it, it would take take us much too long to go through the, the the long list of you know sort of second or day two things that we need to start unraveling uh, whether it comes to immigration policy to trade policy uh, etc uh, but that might be the subject of a future episode. Well, we're not quite done yet. Um, Kelly, <laughs> as, as you are now a uh, think tank professional, 
Um, and as you would consider this kind of thing of sort of the day after Trump, what should our priorities be post-Trump? How would you tackle? Well, I think I'd agree with um, both Corey and Rosa, what they said so far. I think the trade issue, uh, frankly, the global economic issue, not just the trade issue, I think is is an important one to tackle. Because I do think there are there are a number of Americans who you know, trade is good overall, but there are people that are hurt by trade. And I think we've got to figure out uh, better ways through domestic policy uh, to figure out how to protect those people or how to take care of them or train them differently or, or whatnot, um, or have the, the social safety net in place yeah. Yeah. so that the disruptive effects of trade, um, you know, don't have as much of an impact. And it's, so I think it's as much of an economic policy, domestic economic policy um, review as it is uh, a foreign uh, international trade policy review. Um, so I think that's important. I think the, the, the allies, I think, is top of my list, uh, frankly, and all those the sort of assertions that Rosa was talking about. But also, you know, I think we have to layer in uh, great power competition and what, you know, we think the United States should be doing um, at home and abroad to position itself well uh, for the transition that we're in. And I think this is more, I think, relevant to the China challenge than it is to the Russia challenge. I think the Russia one is somewhat different. Um, but in China in particular, we don't, we have not, uh, I think, woken up uh, to the scale of the China challenge, both economic and security. And so we need to be doing kind of a soup to nuts uh, look at what's, what are the ele- elements of American national power that we want to have endure, where are the places that we're going to have to make adjustments, what are the decisions we're going to have to make as it relates to priorities to be able to compete effectively uh, with China China, uh, on a global scale. And that's everything from how much we invest in our education system, how much R&D investment we make, um, to how we work with our allies overseas um, to try to limit China's ability to, to draft off the international system. So I think it's you know, both allies, it's trade, it's the things we have to do at home, but it's also how we're going to try to position the United States in the context of that that broader global shift uh, in power that I think is occurring. I mean, we frankly, I think you guys all know this, but post-Cold War, I think we all got a little lazy <laughs> in terms of thinking about the longevity of American power um, and the sort of the evolution and the natural evolution of democracy. I think we are facing a democratic backsliding globally, and we've got to figure out what we're going to do about that. Um, so those are the places I would start, and we are starting some of that here at CAP, actually. Um, so, yeah, that's where I would begin. Okay, let me let me just sort of take it a, a step further, uh, or let me propose something, for example. Um, my sense is that all this sort of insanity about the wall goes away the day after Trump leaves. My sense is that a lot of the insane picking a fight with Mexico and Canada goes away the day after Trump leaves. Uh, my sense is that uh, the complexity of the China relationship lingers and needs to be dealt with. My sense is that you know uh, the State Department is going to take a long time to recover from the gutting that it's had. Uh, and so even if the policies change the day after, this is going to go on. Um, Corey, can you suggest, you know, a country or or a couple of countries where politics is likely to just change the next day because it's a change of the president? I think you're exactly right that 
um, Mexico policy will change immediately. I actually think Germany policy will also change immediately. President Trump has been weirdly um, antagonistic towards the German chancellor. And I think her policies of emphasizing the values equation uh, that Kelly mentioned are part of it. But I also think the president just basically has a problem with women. Um, and <laughs> and so, <If> you think? <laughs> <laughs> I think Russia policy will change. Um, the administration's Russia policy has been so much better than one would imagine, given the president's personal proclivities. But I think stopping talking encouragingly and positively about Vladimir Putin and congratulating him on his election. Uh, I, uh, he is a very he is a very handsome mag magnetic man, Corey. <laughs> it's horrible to hear the president congratulate CC and congratulate Putin and congratulate President Xi. Uh, so so I think that will stop immediately. Uh, what else? Where else do I think it will change really fast? Uh, where do you think it will change fast, David? Yeah, David. <laughs> well, as I said, I think I, I think it's going to change in this hemisphere fast. I think it's going to probably change pretty quickly on a bunch of these issues associated with refugees and immigration. Uh, I think that it's going to change pretty quickly in Israel and the Gulf. Uh, it's not that the U.S. is going to go from from being uh, um, uh, sort of blindly supportive of some states to 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 being in direct opposition, but I think Bibi Netanyahu thinks he's got a free pass from Trump and he can do whatever he wants. Um, and I think the next president of the United States, regardless of the political party, is going to have a more nuanced view. Whether it's the Obama antipathy or not is going to be a different issue, but. It could go back that far. If a Democrat replaces uh, uh, Trump and, and Netanyahu continues things such as he is doing in Gaza, I think that, that you know that you could have a, a close to 180 degree swing in that relationship. Uh, and again, you know, I mean, you look at the Iran deal. Uh, I think the, the the while there has been a lot of sort of Republican opposition to the deal. A new president, particularly a Democratic president, you're going to likely see a very strong swing backwards. And in fact, I think one of the tricks for a lot of foreign countries um, is going to be how do you stretch this out? How do you postpone things uh, until some future administration can deal with them? And that, by the way, may be also the trick in terms of the North Korean negotiation. You know, started on a path now, but. You know, the, the Trump team is focused on denuclearization. There are other teams that are likely to come in and that may view that as an unrealistic goal um, because it is an unrealistic goal and and that there may be an entirely different, entirely different view there. Um, so I think on the institutional issues, particularly within the U.S. government, there's going to be a lot of repair work to be done. But I think most U.S. relationships are going to change fairly dramatically. Um, as, as a result of all of this. Does that make sense to you, Kelly, or do you think I'm just, you know, trying to stay? Yeah, I do think that there are some that are, some of our friends overseas are not going to 
fully return immediately. I think actually Europe might be a harder nut to crack. I mean, on the one hand, you know, any future U.S. president is going to be a thousand times greater than President Trump as it relates to, to Europe. But if you watch what's happening in Europe, and especially in Central Europe, uh, you know, there are some similar drivers um, and dynamics that are occurring in places like Hungary and Poland that, you know, I wonder how much of a return to sort of normalcy in the U.S.-European relationship uh, there is going to be. I think they're going to be enduring challenges there. And, of course, we all for- we sort of forgotten about Brexit for now. Um, although Corey's not, she's living at, uh, in Europe right now, but that's still on the horizon. <laughs> so, you know, we could, we could still be swimming in the wake of that, um, in the sort of transition period of the U S presidency. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, I think there are, there are a number of allies, I mean, personal, you know, friends who have told me, um, that they'll never fully believe that we're reliable, Again, and then that's the part that I think we've got to figure out now how to not just sort of snap back, but to how to have an enduring, um, more sustainable relationship with our allies, where they they can they believe they can trust us um, for the long for the long run. Well, then let me flip this as we go to a sort of our last round of these these questions here to to you, Rosa, and say, what do you think is going to be the most lasting effect of the Trump presidency? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, it's, I don't know, right? I mean, I, I, I'm torn between two views, um, you know, one of which is that uh, Trump is going to turn out to be a flash in the pan, uh, that, that once he's gone, uh, that will be a rapid course correction, and that there won't be an enduring effect except in a, you know, a small way of this becomes, you know, yet yet another little little pebble tossed into the waters, creating ripples of, hmm, maybe the U.S. is not so reliable. Maybe the U.S. is not so great. Maybe we should hedge our bets for other states. Um, so so that and that's one possibility. I, I think that is possible. You know that that we we and I especially perhaps are are very good at coming up with these apocalyptic scenarios. Uh, in which you know this is just the the tipping point uh, in a you know catastrophic slide towards uh, you know World War III national destruction etc. But but I think it is possible you know on the what does not kill us makes us strong theory of the world um, that that there really isn't a big impact in the end you know that was a, that there was a big impact for individual human beings while Trump was there you know. Um, but once he's gone, he's gone, and we get back to normal is is quite possible. So, but on the other hand, um, <laughs> I'm perfectly capable of coming up with apocalyptic visions that say that even if Trump is gone, that we we do get past some tipping point. That there is both a tipping point, uh, not just in the U.S. but but elsewhere, you know, towards uh, more authoritarian less democratic forms of populism around the globe and that we cannot recover from that, that in the U.S. our own democracy is seen as so utterly tarnished uh, and so permanently tarnished that that makes it impossible for us to to be ever again considered a reliable leader or even a reliable partner with other states. Uh, and that indeed the, the fomenting by Trump, uh, by Bannon, by Stephen Miller, et cetera, of uh, all sorts of divisive politics uh, by, by, you know, 
empowering straight out racism, xenophobia, misogyny, you name it, uh, it potentially gets us to the to the brink of of you know in in the most apocalyptic version some some version of a civil war, you know a real civil conflict that we can't walk back from that, uh, and we see rhetoric to that effect on the far right uh, of you know we'll have to fight etc. When the liberals with their soy lattes come to try to take away our guns, you know we'll just have to fight them, uh, and 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 so I you know I I I honestly have no idea whether my apocalyptic imaginings are just goofy and silly and we can all say, oh, they're goofy and silly and not worry about them, uh, and we're more likely to get to the, the no effect, or, or whether we should be seriously digging our silos a little bit deeper. Well, I, I know where you tend in that regard, as do all of them, <laughs> which is why they're here. There's a certain kind of survivalist cult to the listeners of Deep State Radio that are looking to you for clues. <laughs> Who would have thought that I would lead a survivalist cult? Well, I, 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 you will lead it and you will wear your, your heavy crown of entropy. But, but Corey, um, you know, one, one of the things that we come back to on a regular basis on this show is you providing a little bit of historical perspective. And when I think about Rose's question, I think about this overall question, I do ask myself, at what point in American history has there ever been a president that was a one-off, that didn't represent a deeper underlying trend, who was a real anomaly? Can you think of any? <laughs> oh, yeah, I can think of lots of them. Most American presidents are have terms that are completely undistinguished, um, and yet they got elected president. So... When you, when you elect an American president that is inconsequential, it typically means you are happy with the way things are. And where, when people are unhappy with the way things they are, with things the way they are, they tend to bounce around and keep turning keys in the lock until they finally have somebody with enough leadership. The bad news is... Um, we have actually had a very serious uh, precursor to Russia, to Rosa's um, concern, right? That's the run up to the Civil War, where you have five or six genuinely terrible American presidents mm -hmm. who, who lack the ability or the courage to tackle the problems that the country is frothing about. And it's not until you get Abraham Lincoln's clarity of vision and decency and genuine greatness um, that, that the problem, the perversion of slavery in America gets solved. And it gets solved by force of arms. Uh, and so we do have a chilling precedent to the country being unhappy, political leaders lacking the leadership to bravely address the country's problems and us sinking further and further into the mire. Well, but those, the, all of those cases speak to my point of some form of continuity. I was really sort of getting at the fact that it seems like anomalous presidents are unusual, that they tend to represent a bit of a trend. And Kelly, as I sort of come here, as we come to the end of this thing, I think that the complementary question to the whole series of questions we've been asking is, 
where in Trump do you see continuity? For example, I think a lot of people out there in the world would say, post-Bush, post-Iraq, um, you saw first Obama and then Trump being loathe to get engaged overseas, perhaps leaning backwards a little more than we had leaned forwards in the past. Uh, and so that Trump may be seen as having some continuity with Obama in that regard. Do you, are, are, do you have other areas where you see Trump as a symptom of something deeper and likely to continue? Um, I guess, you know, in terms of continuity, yes, I think you're right. There's, I think, a growing um, swell of American, you know, popular feeling against getting more deeply involved in wars overseas. Um, and in that sense, I guess, yes, he does represent that continuity, although I think that's more his team than it is him. Um, you know, I actually think Trump is, I actually think he might be more of an anomaly. Um, in fact, I was toying with an idea of writing a, a piece called The Last Presidency uh, at one point, because I think he has forever changed the presidency, the office of the presidency, to a point where I think Americans now, or at least maybe this is my perspective, I don't think we'll ever look at that office the same way. Um, and in some ways, it's lost its mystique, its power, its uh, you know greatness. And I think it's in part because of what Trump has been doing um, as he's been sitting in the Oval Office. And I don't know, I guess I wonder if, if our friends overseas feel the same way about the American presidency. Um, and it's, you know, so that's sort of the negative side of things. On the on the upside, sort of to the theme of this podcast, you know, I think our institutions uh, have demonstrated a, a certain level of resiliency um, that, you know, even I didn't expect, um, whether it's the deep state <laughs> uh, or, you know, the, the court system, I mean, even Congress, as much as I would like to throw sticks at Congress, um, I think they have been a constraining factor on the president. So, you know, it's, that gives me a little bit of hope, but I think in terms of, you know, him being an anomaly or, or a continuity, I, I think he's, I think he's profoundly different. And I think his impact on, on the presidency is going to be um, significant. Well, that's um, unsettling. But it is an appropriate place to wrap up this discussion. Um, I do think this is an issue that requires greater exploration, and I support Rosa's call for further discussions in this area. I'm really, really glad to have had uh, Kelly and Corey and Rosa here today with uh, the rest of us in the land of Deep State Radio to talk about all of this. But uh, next week, I will actually be coming to you from another project of our organization, which is called Culture Summit, which is going to be in Abu Dhabi. It brings together something like 600 people from 90 countries who are involved in uh, using culture to advance positive change in the world, whether it's fighting extremism, fighting climate change, empowering women, uh, or uh, uh, preserving heritage, uh, and we have artists performing in every art form from film to theater to poetry to dance to um, uh, all forms of music, uh, as well as policymakers and others. And every year we bring together these people for five days. And uh, so next week's Deep State Radio, I at least will be coming to you from Abu Dhabi. Um, Corey will probably be in London. Rosa will probably be in a silo someplace. Um, and we will, <laughs> we will continue that. And then I go from there to China. So I will do two episodes from China. 
Um, and so hopefully this will provide uh, some different uh, perspectives in all of this. If you're interested in Culture Summit, look for it um, uh, on, on, the, on the internet at uh, culturesummitabudabi.com or, or, or on Twitter, because uh, it's a very, very interesting event. And there's also a lot of kind of good music and other kinds of uh, performances that'll come out of it that you might want to watch. David, how come you never take us with you to all these exotic places you go to? I didn't think you would be interested. Yeah, David. Yeah. I thought, I thought you spent all the spare time stacking, you know, MR I do, I do. Somebody yeah. needs to take me out of my silo. Yeah, well, that's true. Well, you were in Turkey not too long ago. You were fairly close to all of it. <laughs> but we will have to take this Deep State Radio show on the road in any event. We've been getting a lot of people saying, let's do a few live. We've got some thoughts on that. And so... Hopefully when I get back from China, I'm going to really focus on this and we're going to have some uh, announcements regarding where we may do some deep state radio live. Obviously, you know, some on Corey's doorstep there. She will bring us to Buckingham Palace where she is <laughs> you know, regular, regular guest or some such place. Um, but uh, we will, or, or will you, I think you're originally going to take us to the George Papadopoulos pub, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> That will be one of one of these uh, uh, broadcasts that we've got, but we're, we're going to do a bunch of things like that. Uh, and I just encourage everybody to stand by as we do it. But thanks again for this episode, and we look forward to joining you in the coming weeks. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions, and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.